Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. There is a Bible we've been handing out, the book of Hebrews, but um, apparently we've run out, so hopefully we'll be able to have some of those for you next week. That's the book that we're studying right now is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews uh, chapter four is what we're in. I do want to make reference, though, to the fact that um, we are starting up our city groups coming up here in a couple weeks. Praise the Lord. And for those of you that have not been a part of a city group, the, the city groups are groups that are stationed in different areas within the city. It gives you an opportunity to get with people and get connected with them. But I do think expectations are real, right? And it's good when you have healthy expectations going into a thing. So first, I do want you to note, going into the city group, the city group is not a Bible study. And whenever you go to a Bible study, the end game is more knowledge about the Bible. That's not necessarily the end game here. Although we do want you to know the word of God more, We want you to be able to live out and experience a community of believers. So we will read a portion of the text we had preached on the previous week, and then we will discuss it. And the discussion is a biblically-based discussion. We're really just trying to live the Word of God out. And that's very different than just knowing more. The book of James talks about being hearers and doers of the Word. And so when we get into city groups, we're really trying to live that out together. So it is not necessarily a Bible study. It is a community discussion around the Word of God and the sermon just preached. The second thing is that uh, city groups are not necessarily the place where you're going to find all your friends. Now, I hope you make friends in your city group, but that is not the core definition of what city group is doing. City group is when we say at the end of this, when we get towards the end of this time, we're going to talk about our mission, which is to connect to God grow with family and serve our city. It's really where we grow as a family. What would happen if you could draft people to be in your family? Wouldn't that be interesting if you could like hold a draft, right? And you'd be like, you, not you, you, not you, right? No, but you didn't do that. You came into a family and there were all types of, you got that one uncle, you know that uncle, right? That person you would never think you'd be in family with. Family is all over the place. They're all over the place spiritually. They look very different. Well, we're growing as family. and We're trying to take away our need to be consumers. A consumeristic belief means that I select everything I want and I only take uh, things I want in my life, like everything's a menu. But family says, I, I'm going to grow with these people and I'm going to grow in life with these people. So when we are in city groups, we're growing as family together. And so we pray that you would get connected to a city group again in a A week or so here, we're going to be launching those. They'll be spread out throughout the city. Well, as I said, we're in the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews is such an interesting book because it's dealing with a group of people that are in a city, most likely the city of Jerusalem. And while they're in Jerusalem, they're dealing with this one major fact. Ethnically, they are Jewish, but spiritually, they are Christian. Most of their lives, everything they've seen around them is a Jewish way of thinking, reading the scriptures in a particular way, where they would see the temple, they would see priests, and they would want to aim their lives to be around their friends and their tribe in a very Jewish way. But as Christians, they're living now countercultural. 
They're telling their friends, yeah, I believe in the Messiah, but I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, when I read the scriptures, I'm understanding that Jesus is the pinnacle of the scriptures. And this was countercultural to all their friends there living in Jerusalem. Well, in light of that, the Bible tells us in Luke, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, that they were beginning to lose some of their homes. Their, their land was being seized in light of that. And then in Hebrews 13, it tells us that many of them were being thrown into prison. So think about that. Just to be able to come into a relationship with other Christians, you'd be thrown in prison or you could have your, uh, your, your, your house seized. That's persecution, right? That's problems. And they were facing those problems just by identifying their life as a Christian. Well, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 he picks up this idea of the chaos and the busyness that they're feeling in light of the persecution that they're facing. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, it reads this way. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then in verse four and five, and I wonder in verse four and five, we could read that together on three. One, two, three. For he has somewhere spoken. So there's something powerful happen. If you were to look back in the previous chapter, I talked about how he references Psalm 95. Psalm 95, if you have your notes, you can write that down. That's, he's referenced Psalm 95 in chapter 3. Now he references Psalm 95 again. And Psalm 95 is dealing with the big narrative of Israel leaving Egypt and trying to get to the promised land of Canaan. They've been wandering in the wilderness and they're trying to get to this place. And what God says is, rest will be found in Canaan. Rest will be found in the place that you've been designed for. You were not intended to always be living in Egypt. You were not intended to always be in the wilderness, but God wanted them in Canaan. Canaan was that place of rest. So God's punishment for them because the people were complaining and they had a problem with Moses and they didn't want to follow Moses anymore. So God's punishment of them wasn't some storm, wasn't some calamity. His punishment was, you will not rest. You will never enter the rest. And this imagery, therefore, is God believing that rest is fundamental to our humanness, fundamental to how we operate, our composition as people. We need rest to experience joyfulness and fullness of life. Rest is what we've been designed for. And the absence of rest is the corruption of our design. Therefore, resting and the lack of rest is punishment and it is also abundance. God says this in 
The Ten Commandments, you think about the Ten Commandments, and in the Ten Commandments, we know that you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Universally understood as problematic to a society, amen? These are all bad things. You can go to any part of the world and you think stealing, killing, and committing adultery are problematic to a society. But what God says also in the Ten Commandments is this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So what God says is, I believe that stealing and killing corrupt society, and I think overworked people can be the corruption and the degradation of a society as well. There is a work too much concept. Now, I know we don't believe that, right? Especially in an overworked city like New York where you either moved here to be something or you're constantly thinking about something or you want to be the next thing. We are constantly in this state of feeling like we have got to work and be and do. Beck Heinrich called this the doing disease. She essentially says the need to keep an, an, an agenda and a goal as a constant way of life. What she's saying there is that for many of us, there is this invisible drill sergeant on our shoulder saying more, more, you've got to have more. And we think it's impressive when you see people on the weekend, like, how you doing? You're like, I'm dying. I'm about to be dead. Like, I've got so much going on. Like, I'm, my, I'm like, I can't believe I have a pulse right now. Right. And we're like, wow, you're ki- yo, you're killing it. Right. Right. We think that's dope. Like nobody's like, I, you know, I'm just chilling. Like, I don't even know. Like, I didn't put this in my rest. You're like, okay, well, you need, you need to come up then, right? Because we think, we, think, we think busyness is a sign of significance, right? And we think a full calendar is an image of a full life, right? So this is kind of the heartbeat that we get at. And you know what we're like? We, we are becoming much like the machines that we are connected to. I promise you, I promise you, if my phone was a person, they would be mad at me. My phone is essentially in a sweatshop. It never turns off at all, right? And if I do charge it, I charge it so that it goes back to work all the time. I don't even know if I've, I don't even know if I know how to turn the thing off, right? Because the only time I charge it is to go to work, and the only time I turn it off is when it goes off itself. In other words, it has no power left. And in many ways, that's how we operate, right? We only rest because we know we got to get back to work. And we only turn off because we shut down, we burn out. We're going to do it, but I just can't right now because it's too heavy. But there's never a time where we say, I need to be off. I need to pull away. And so part of our, the craziness of our lives is feeling like we've got to be on. We've got to achieve. Now, much like what I'm talking about with our phones, there are technological reasons as to why we feel that way. Part of it is we are hyper-connected to global success. You know the person your age in your space that's killing it. In Bangladesh, 
I mean, like way across the world, like they do what you do. You're like, oh my God, I'm not keeping up. It's like, you don't even know these people's lives. You don't even know what they did to get where they're at. But you, you are literally comparing yourself to people globally. And it begins to suffocate the beauty of how God made you because you do not know the story of those people's lives. You may want what they have, but you don't know what it took to get to where they're at. One of the greatest things that I've discovered is just because a person is driven does not mean they're happy. It doesn't mean they're full. There are people accomplishing great things and their lives are being dried up. Don't believe full activity is a full life. But, but what do you see? You see, we, we go, man, this is the, and we, and we tend to celebrate those that are celebrated. We tend to uplift those that are being uplifted. Look, they, they, they're look at how much they're accomplishing, right? And so we bathe in other people's success. And we cannot be satisfied with who we are. We are in a constant state of comparison. When I was a young preacher, I was 26, 27. I didn't know who was killing it. I only knew the people in my town. We, all we had was tapes. That's all we had. We didn't have no podcasting. I knew a guy down the street was dope. That's all I knew, you know? I didn't know how good everybody was, right? And so you are so connected, and yet this comparison that we feel. I tell younger preachers too, be very careful of who you're following. There's somebody on your feed that you might be watching, and when you watch them, you idolize them and you covet them. And it is as toxic to your soul as porn is. Because you're lusting after another man's position, another person's space. And it happens to us all the time. There are people that we need to spiritually and uh, socially unfollow because it is doing cultural and toxic things to us. But the other thing that I think... Um, that's just very different in our society, is there is a cultural side to this. When we were in a different society, more of an agrarian society, agriculture, your identity came, like the job you did was your daddy's job or your mom's job or, or women took care of the home, right? And now we're in a different society and we're glad for that, right? Because we all can be different things and you can be into fashion, you can be into business, you can be into acting, you can be into all these different things. You don't have to do what your family did. But the danger in this is, now that we don't have family as an identity, we are constantly in a state of trying to find our individual identity. Literally, it used to be enough to be James's son. Maddie's boy. It used to be enough to be a part of being a son or a daughter, a father or a wife. That was the essence of our culture. And we like the fact that we have so much ingenuity and detail and nuance. But it is ruining us wanting this new identity, this new achievement, and this new status. That when you sit on a plane and someone says, who are you? You feel this connection to say, I'm amazing. I'm doing something amazing. You feel embarrassed to say that I'm just doing something simple. And it's because we have all this social pressure. And if it's not that, if it's not the social pressure at career, it's the social pressure of family. 85% of this church is single. 
And, and for much of us, for many of us, this heartbeat to be married is good. I want you to be married. I want you to find Mr. Right, Mrs. Right. I want that for you. But there is a very good chance that you might be more in love with the status of a spouse than the spouse themselves, that you want that new thing, right? And because of that, in many ways, we, we get in love with love, but, but not the actual journey. You'll know after a year. You'll know after a year, right? It'll be challenging. So this idea of upward mobility, it's all around us. It, we're drowning in it. And this is constant state of pressure to be. And one of the things that the author harkens back to is helping people and the children of Israel understand the essence of Sabbath in the first place. Sabbath comes first out of the idea that the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. He says in Deuteronomy 5, 15, you shall remember... So he literally tells them, remember this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, so in light of that, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Keep a day set apart because you were once a slave. Now, what's the heartbeat of that? Slaves don't tell their boss no. Slaves don't ask for times off. Slaves have to. Slaves got to keep going. Slaves got to sla slaves got to keep up. And and you know do, do you know that slaves didn't have health benefits, right? That if you got sick, you were dead. So you <coughs> you're going in, <coughs> I got to I got to do it because you're a slave. You got to keep pushing, you got to keep going in spite of your own health. You've got to go because slavery means you cannot stop. And the heartbeat of what he gets at here is whenever you can push back, you can pull back, and you can create some boundary, it is this idea that I am not tied. My identity is not tied to this work. This work does not have mastery over me. In many ways, rest is the declaration of our freedom, and overworking is the indication of our slavery, that we have to keep going. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that burden, that pull, that pressure to be somebody, to do something, to make some kind of outstanding accomplishment? Doesn't it pull at you? And the heartbeat of this is that they are saying you were once slaves. So the author now then tells us, how do we enter that rest? In Hebrews 4.3, he says, for we who have believed enter that rest. It is in believing in God, believing on God, that you will enter his rest. In Hebrews 4.4, 4, he says, for he has spoken somewhere, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And it harkens back to Genesis 2-2 where God rested. So he says, believing in God and believing on God allows us to enter his rest. Genesis gives us this picture of God working, of God creating, of God hanging the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then it says, on the seventh day, God 
rested. Now, if God rested on the seventh day and I rest, we have to ask some fundamental questions. Do God and I need rest in the same fundamental ways? Or we could ask a different question. Does God get tired? Was that what happened in Genesis? Was God like, yo, he hung the sun and he was just like, I need a break. Is that what he did? Or is God talking about something fundamentally different about rest? When God talks about rest here, he is saying that after his work, he was satisfied with his work. It was a work that was complete. It was a work that was finished. It was a work that was done. It was a work that was good. It was a work that you could look at and glance at and feel good about it. <clears throat> you ever, you know, you're typing, all of a sudden you hit send, and you're like, I, I feel good about that, right? And then you get a grade back, and it's, you got an A. You feel good because you're satisfied in the work you did. God, in essence, has this great work he's done, and he's satisfied. He's completed a work. In speaking of this then, we have to acknowledge that the completed work of God is different than us trying to work and do something great. When God is satisfied in a thing, when God completes a thing, it is far different. And so when John 19 and 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, it says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is saying, therefore, that Jesus is the embodiment of that same kind of finished work, that Jesus completes the work on the cross and satisfies the wrath of God so that you would not need to work your way into a relationship with God, but that it was already done, that it was complete, and that you would not have to have any more upward mobility in any way, but God does the work for you. Jesus says, it is done, it is finished. It is satisfied. And then Hebrews 4 and 9 and 10, he says, so then, look, look here. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest, listen now, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So he says, if you have believed and you've rested from your work, then you will sense this satisfaction in the same way that God did. A satisfaction in God, a completion in God, and a need to not be anything more than a child of God. So his work is finished. We, um, earlier we were, they were playing and they were playing Rocky. And I'm not, a, I'm not a big Rocky guy. I'm, I'm a big Rocky one, two, three. I'm not a Rocky like 26, 27, 28 kind of guy. So I like the earlier Rockies. But in Rocky one, there was this incredible scene that happens in Rocky. If you remember, and if you've seen it, Rocky is supposed to fight Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed is the champ. And the guy that he was gonna fight got hurt. So Apollo needs to fight somebody. So they think of this idea you know what, we'll get this local guy from Philly, the Italian stallion, 
will fight him. And on the night before the fight, Rocky's walking around. He's looking at all the posters that are up. He's seeing that this guy is amazing. This, this Apollo Creed is amazing. He goes back to his rundown apartment in Philly. He looks over at Adrian. Adrian's on the bed. And he says, Adrian, I can't beat him. She goes, what do you mean, Rocky? He says, I can't beat him. He's too much. I mean, he's going to beat me. I, I know I, I cannot win. She says, well, why would you want to fight him if you know you can't win? And here's what he says. He says, if I can go 12 rounds with the champ, then I'll know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky felt, if I can accomplish this one thing, then I'm somebody. And deep down inside of all of us, there is a deformed sense that you've got something working in your mind that tells you, I will be special when I complete this next work. It is, it is that disease inside of us. And let me tell you, when you get to the next thing, guess what? A new thing pops up. And so you say to yourself, what's what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to be the next thing thing, right? So I'm going to move to New York because all the thing things live in New York. Yeah. Then you move to New York and you get that rent and you're like, oh my God, right? And so then you come to New York and you're like, oh man, I'm going to be that thing thing, right? And so then all of a sudden you get a job job and you're like, ooh, okay, I got a job job, right? Because I'm going to be a thing thing, right? So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You get that job and the job is hard. But people start hearing about you and they're like, oh my God, you're amazing. You're amazing. You're like, thank you. And you go to your room and you're like, oh my God, this is so hard. I'm going to die, right? And just, but, then you, but then you post your food on Instagram, amen, right? <laughs> and you show people that you're amazing. You're amazing, amazing, but you got to be that thing, thing, right? And you're doing it, right? And then all of a sudden you're, you're here three years, four years. Now you made a name for yourself. Yeah. You a big deal now. Yeah, you a thing thing. Everybody's talking about you and you are a big thing. But deep in your heart, quietly, you're constantly needing more. Three years goes by and you're like, you know what? I'm a thing thing, but I need a boo thing. Yeah, yeah, I need somebody. Yeah, I need somebody. So now you need a relationship. And guess what? You find you a boo thing. Yeah. Yeah, you found you a boo. Yeah. But now we need a baby. Yeah. We got to have a baby. We get a baby. Now we got a baby thing. Yeah. Got us a baby. That baby, we got to put that baby in a good school. So we got to get our money. So baby, you got to work. You need a thing, thing, thing now. You need to work now. Now you're working for more. And I'm telling you this. The drive will drive you to the grave until you're in the grave. It does not stop. It does not stop. There is no magical season coming to turn down that voice. It does not stop. 
There is no magical spouse. There is no magical state of life. It does not stop. The voice gets louder. And the more success you have, the voice goes more to your core. It does not stop. Listen, it doesn't. You'll only want more. But you can pull back and not need all these temporal things to satisfy your soul. But it is being with God that becomes our success. He is that thing that your heart is longing for. And you have to take away, you've got to get away all those other identities that attach yourself to you from things you see, the things you've heard, to the places you've been. And you, and you, you kind of hear all these things working inside of you, like to say, I got to be, I got to be. And, and you've got to be in front of God and his presence. And he begins to wash away all those things that have attached themselves to you. And it is through his voice. So there's this crazy part here in the text where the author, he turns this corner. There's this contrast. And all of a sudden in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, he says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He, he, what is in essence saying that the word of God reveals ourselves to ourselves. That we get to know who we are more. And what we need, the Bible is saying that we need a cutting experience to get at our agenda and our motives. That we need something to go deep inside of us to work a surgery inside of us because we are constantly attaching ourselves to so many things. And the word of God cuts away all of those subtle identities that we place around ourselves. The word of God, he says, gets to joint and to marrow. It gets inside. And he says it is a sword, two-edged The way that you become a confident person is not just knowing what you're good at, not knowing you're great. It is also having a confidence in knowing who you're not. It is through humility. You know how, you know how I've always defined humility? Humility is just an accurate representation of who you are. It is, the, it is knowing yourself. You ever, you ever been around somebody that's comfortable with themselves? They're just like, yeah, this is me. I mean, Christian, not amen. But I mean, just somebody who like, they're, they're okay with who they are, right? They're confident. A lot of times confidence doesn't come just because I'm great at things. It's, I know what I'm not great at. I know who I'm not. And what the Bible does is it exposes our sinfulness. And it, and it exalts God as great. And it says that the, it, it's got to cut us. It's got to get in there and expose agendas. 
I used to uh, sell knives, amen? I used to sell knives. I did, I did, I did. Sold them. The last four o'clock, they started laughing because I've had a lot of jobs, a lot of different jobs. But I, I used to sell knives, um, Cutco knives. Worked for Vector Marketing, yes. Uh, Victor Galloway, he's not here right now, but he works for them now. So yes, I used to sell knives uh, at the end of my high school career. And uh, what I would do is I would go in there and I'd show them the knives and they had this incredible blade, you know what I'm saying? And the blade would cut and I'd cut all these oranges and I'd be like, see, it's amazing. And then we had these scissors and I'd cut this penny. And I'd be like, and that was like my home run. That was like my closing, you know what I'm saying? And I cut the penny and people were like, oh my gosh, they pull out their wallet. And I sold a lot of knives, right? And so that's what I did. I sold these knives. And in selling them, it was kind of crazy because like I was in relationship with these people. And so I would do these demonstrations like all the time. And then after I get done with them, I'd sell them and then I'd see these people. And I'm like, yo, how those knives work? And they're like, mm-hmm, they, they, you were right, you were right, they're amazing. I'm like, I told you, I told you. These knives are banging, yeah. Because the point is that they're using them, right? But wouldn't it be weird if I came over the crib and I saw them? And I'm like, yo, how are the knives working? And they just said, and they started like doing the same demonstration that I was doing. Like, yeah, you know, the edge and the knife. I'm like, yeah, but are you using the knives? Like, no, we don't use them. No, we don't cut nothing with it. We just demonstrate it like you do. Yeah, we just kind of show off the knives, but we don't cut anything with it. I'd be like, oh, that wasn't the point. The point wasn't that you could demonstrate how the knife works. The point is that you would actually use the knife in your life. For many of us, we've learned how to demonstrate what the Word of God looks like. But in many ways, we've never gotten cut by it. It's so weird when people impress me with Hebrew and Greek words, but the Word is not doing anything inside of you. If the Word is do, if you spending more time showing people the Word outside of you versus what the Bible has done inside of you, it's not a knife, it's a demonstration. Right? It's, the, the Bible was never meant to be a demonstration of insights. It was meant to be a surgery to the soul. And the more, the more that you, listen, the more that you let that surgery happen, it helps with the disease we have. Because the disease we have never stops. Oh, pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. You a pastor. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? All of us feel that weight to be the next thing. The comparison trap, it's constant. The need to be more. You say, well, you know, it'll end when I'm a mom. Yeah, because moms don't compare themselves. Anyway, so... So you need a reorientation to who God is every day. You need to be reminded. You need a soul that is re-engineered to the presence of God, not to the comparison of men, not to the, the pulling effect that our culture has. Richard Lovelace says it this way. He says, we start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God, and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in the Christian life or in life itself. Since these arguments will not quiet the human consciousness, what he's saying is 
you, you try to do great things, but there's still something unsettled in you. He says, we are inevitably moved either to discouragement and apathy or to self-righteousness, which falsifies the record to achieve a sense of peace. The faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of peace. To be rooted in God, to be getting your peace from God. And he uses this imagery of warming yourself at the fire of God's love. Jesus would say that in order to understand rest, you need to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn, listen, learn from me, for I am gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look what he says. Everybody who's weary, anybody got burdens? Anybody heavy laden, meaning you, you've got a lot on your shoulders? I'll teach you to rest. You've know, you got to come to me. Come to me. No, 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 I don't want you to work for me. I've done the work. I want you to walk with me. I want you to be with me. God is about relationship. The imagery given is of a yoke. And the yoke would be of two oxen, often. These two oxen, the way it would generally work is that you would have an older, mature, strong ox with the weak, lowly, young ox. The big ox would get under, and that would be the ox's yoke. And the little ox would come underneath that ox's yoke. So you'd have the strong ox, little ox. And as the big ox would work, it would pull the young little ox along, teaching him when to graze, when to work, when to go by the water and drink. And it would be through that rhythm and pattern of working and resting and moving and stopping that the little ox would one day begin to learn how to work with him and also rest with him at the same time. But if you noticed in the text, he says, take my yoke, come under my yoke, come. And what we naturally wanna do because you gotta be successful, you know what I'm saying? You gotta be somebody. What you and I tend to do is we say to God, come under my yoke. I need you to hear my prayers. I need you to be this blessing factory. And so come under my yoke and I want you to follow me into my success, God. I want you to make me into everything I know I can be. You know, I am somebody. And I want to be everything, God. So come under my yoke. And would you just follow me into my success? And God says, wait a minute. You can do that. And I love you so much because I chase people down. I'll even bless you while you live that life. But you'll never rest. It'll be constant. You'll never find rest there. 
Success is a horrible master. The yoke is constant. All right, Lord, well, I guess I'll go under your yoke. He said, come on, come on under my yoke. You weary? You heavy laden? Come under my yoke. All right. Where are we going? Oh, Calvary Road, baby. <laughs> come on, we dying to self today. Yeah. Where else we going? Holiness. Yeah. Yeah. What about my job? No, I'm going to make you, I'm, I want you to be good on your job. But I'm concerned about your character too. Wow. I want to be, I want to have a big name. Well, on this side, you kind of make my name great. Oh, man. The Calvary Road. You see, we don't want a Calvary Road. We want a red carpet. That's what we want. That's our, na our natural posture is to pull Jesus into our and let me just tell you this. I'm going to just say this. I know I'm going to sound like I'm hating. But you also have to listen. You have to be very careful about the preacher consumption you have because there is tons of preaching that is inspiring you to great things, and I praise God for it. But if you only hear inspiration without suffering, then you're not getting the full counsel of God's word. Because I, I, wanna, I, I know God wants you to do great things, but God wants his name to be named amongst your friends, amongst your family. That's what he's pulling you into right now. And on that side, this is what you can do. And my, my staff, we talked about this earlier last year. There'll be times, because you know, as a pastor, pastor life, busy life, you know what I'm saying? I'm doing stuff, and I'm doing my sermon. Somebody comes in, I'm doing stuff. Yeah, 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 I got... And then 5 o'clock comes, 5.30 comes. And guess what? At 5.29, something will happen. I get an email. And the email will be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You got to do this right now. And at 5.30, I'm like, deuces. Because even if I disappoint, whatever that was, I know that God is satisfied in me. And so walking in him means walking away from some work. The reason why I can disappoint people because I got an appointment with Jesus. I've appointed him as the leader of my life. And so I invite you tonight to not take away your drive, be driven. But your drivenness can drive you away from the person you love, Jesus. Walk with him. Walk with him. Take his yoke. He invites you into that rest. Father, tonight we, we love you. And we ask that tonight that you would just clarify in our hearts the fact that we will be restless till we rest in you, God. There's nothing that satisfies our heart and our soul like you, God. There is nothing that satisfies our heart and our soul like you, God. There is nothing that will ever satisfy our heart. There is no one that will ever satisfy our heart like you, God. So we ask you, Jesus, that we would reorientate our lives back into your presence, God. Just to be with you, Jesus. Make my success being with you, God. <laughs> 
knowing you, God, resting in Jesus. We invite you, God, into the very moments of our lives. We invite you into the very confusion that we may feel right now, God, and we, we hear your voice beckoning, come to me. We want to come to you tonight, God, in Jesus' name. I wonder if you'd stand with me. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.